Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Today, Securities and Institutions. I will stop the class at about 1.30 so that you can crank up. You have a surprise quiz today. It's, uh, it's so easy, I'm embarrassed to give it to you, but there's that. And uh, it is password protected, so be sure that you, write, you write, put in the password that I put on the board at the time. And to be, start this whole ball rolling, we will look at the numbers as we do all the time. Okay, madam, is this a bull day or a bear day? Bear. And you say bear, bear, and you growl when you say it. Yeah, this is, I mean, if you look at it, see that pattern that I was talking about? The largest stocks in the world, the, represented by the Dow 30, they're down a quarter of a percent. More riskier, still very large stocks, and the Standard Poor's 500, down almost half a percent. And then we've got the NASDAQ, which is down the most. That's got the most volatile stocks in it. Do you see how that sensitivity is measured in there uh, in the way the mar they react to market conditions? The NASDAQ uh, took a... I mean, uh, this is a down day. It's definitely a bear day. It's not a catastrophically down day. Hell, when you've been, set, when you've been trading in a world where you have 10% uh, down days, and th this is not bad at all. It is a, more of a negative day, though. And uh, you can hear all kinds of things. Well, what's causing it to be down today? Well, your uh, educated uh, assessment would be as good as probably some talking heads most likely it's, uh, I don't know. Do you see, well, notice the spark charts though. Do you see how the bears just came out of the gate at the beginning? See those, that drop there uh, after the opening bell, how it was pulling downward? And then it sort of bottomed out. And ever since then, it's been climbing back from that. So there was bad news that started the market off and then somewhere the skids hit and uh, that bad news had already come through, and then there was some positive news that brought the markets back from the bottom that they had been in. And that's not that unusual to see that. One thing that could be happening, remember I told you about profit takers in the last class? If stocks go up a lot, you'll have some traders selling off what they, some of their stuff because you know, they figured they've made enough for the day, they've got dinner uh, money. Well, this would be the opposite of that. When stocks pull down hard, uh, not that un it's not that unusual for stocks that are in decent shape to get pulled down when portfolio shedding happens. In other words, you're a fund manager. All right, let's get rid of some stuff here. And then after the smoke clears, whoa, look at this. There's some things that were, went down more than they should have. And so you buy back in. And this is pretty normal, this choppiness that you have here today. It is definitely not someone, uh, something for the weak of heart. 
you can, if you're a trader, you can have this whipsaw that just pulls the market back and forth in a given day in, uh, in my slush portfolio, which is my side bets. I can be down. Uh, there was one day I came to class in a really bitchy mood. I lost uh, about $2,000, almost the whole amount I had in the account. And then a week later, I was up, uh, I came back and I was up about $800. So I gave an easy quiz that day. So you want to be a bullish kind of investor and root for the good guys here, because that means that I'll probably give you a better quiz. But uh, okay, now, uh, but uh, just notice that it's, it's, boy, it's trying to come back. Uh, I don't know, it's got a ways to go yet. Now, crude. Look at that, see how it's bouncing around in a band? Remember I said about 79 to 85, something like that? You're just gonna see it punching around there for a while now. And the gas prices will come back down here in a few weeks once the supply of other hydrocarbon products fills those pipelines back up. Uh, the diesel, kerosene, jet fuel and all that. You'll see more gas being pr uh, brought out of the cracking towers. and. So crude, uh, the price of gasoline will come down. But the price of crude is actually pretty stable right now, right in this band of about uh, 79 or maybe 78, but 79 to 85. It's just going to bounce around there. That is actually good news because that's a stable price environment. And in the world of trade of professionals, Risk is not something we like. Now, in a rarefied world like uh, derivatives, which is where I play, risk is God to us. We love it. And that's why there are two sides of the market. There's those who want to get rid of risk, and there's who want to take it. And there's, that's how oftentimes transactions will happen. There's a risk-averse person, and there's a risk-preferring person. And I'm going to talk a little more about risk today, but we get into it in a pretty heavy way later in the course. Now, if we look over here, well, gold, good heavens, why are these looking so weird right now? Gold, I mean, that's really not, not doesn't mean a whole lot. It's up a third of a percent. Uh, that, that's almost trivial in metals markets. And silver, silver is up three quarters of a percent. Those kinds of commodities, you kind of keep an eye on them to see if there's something they're telling us, especially gold. If you see gold shooting up in price really strong, you want to go in and see what the conspiracy theorists are all upset about or what has driven the actual more stable traders to get, uh, start worrying. Bonds. Here we go. Bonds. Remember, that's showing you yield. So the yield on the bonds is going down today. Right now, the bond is down 63 basis points. Again, one basis point is a hundredth of a percent. So that's 63 basis points down on the yield. What does that mean to you? Well, in the longer run, interest rates are kind of important to business and to uh, households and, and all that. So when you see those yields going down, that means interest rates overall are probably going down. And that means that helps stimulate the economy. Now, in this case, interestingly enough, yields are going down, so the prices of bonds are going up. Remember, that's a, that's a mathematical relationship. 
So the prices of bonds are going up. That would mean that there are investors jumping into the bond market. They're buying bonds, pushing the price up and the yield down. Well, where are they getting the money to buy bonds? Well, butter my biscuits and call me delicious. Look at the equities market. It's dropping. That's sell-off of equities, and that means that there's money freeing up, and it's going over here to the safe harbor of bonds. There's a term that you want to write down. It's called flight to quality. Flight to quality. The flight to quality is the movement of funds from riskier investments to safer investments. Flight to quality is the movement of funds from riskier investments to safer investments. Flight to quality is the movement of funds from riskier investments to safer investments. Now, so in other words, stocks, equities are riskier than bonds overall. So in a flight to quality, stage one would be from stocks to bonds. That's a, that's a first stage, that's a stage one flight to quality. And we see a little bit smidgen of that today. You see the flight to quality? You see how investors are bailing out of equities, prices are going down, and they're buying stocks, driving their prices up, therefore their yields down. It's not a big one. I mean, you can see flights to quality that are just staggering. Now, there's an old saying, in a flight to quality, from stocks to bonds, and then from bonds to gold, and then, of course, if it's the zombie apocalypse, uh, you go from gold to bullets. So it's stocks to bonds, bonds to, uh, to metals to gold, and then gold to bullets. Let's hope we never get to that last stage, and if we do, make sure you have your cardio and your double tap ready. Uh, but anyway, in, in a case like this, you see the equities are shedding. Now, notice something interesting here. The equities are climbing back, so funds are beginning to move back into equities. And if you look at the bonds, do you see how, well, it's just beginning to start here. It'll probably, you'll start seeing those yields go, going up because the prices will be going down because investors will be pulling their money back out of the bonds and wheeling it back over here to equities. In a given day, it's just up and down. It's like a rodeo some days. This isn't anything major, but you see, yeah, see those, those prices, those, those uh, returns are beginning to recover a little bit here. Now, just coming over here, one last thing to talk about is what happened in Tokyo and then in London. Now, Tokyo is still trading right now. Or rather, London is still trading right now. Tokyo's finished for the day. You notice the Tokyo started down, bear down, bear down. And then the bulls began to grab a hold, and they pushed it about midday, uh, lunchtime in Tokyo. It hit a peak, and then it kind of just kind of fizzled out. It just kind of bobbled from there, a little tiny bit of sell-off. And so, in other words, bad news started the day, and then there was more good news, and the good news pushed them up, and then really wasn't anything much after that to move it in any given direction. Uh, this is actually 
uh, an application of one of Newton's laws of, of Newton's laws uh, of, uh, in order for acceleration to happen, there has to be a, some force that is applied to an object. And if there is no force, the object will stay in a straight line motion. And this is actually that principle. Information is the force that's applied, negative and positive information. If there isn't any of that there, then the, then the stocks won't do anything. It is, it's, this is all just pure physics, and that's one of those things that's a dirty secret, is that behind all of our opinions and our prognostications and our genius, we, if we're really good at what we do, we are simply a type of physics engineer. Uh, so just keep that in mind. Okay, now, if, when the sun, was, uh, sun had set in uh, Tokyo, bell had uh, rang, had rung, and so we come over in London, the uh, sun was rising across Europe, and then in London. In London, they had a little bit of a punch, and then See how they had kind of an interesting thing. They had a bear pull down day there. And then good news there pushed it almost back up to even by the end of the day. So there's that. Uh, it, one of those things. Now, looking at individual stocks, I'm going to take you through and ask you some questions. And I'm trying to think of something. Anyone got a stock that I could look at right now? And don't say Tesla for God's sake. Uh, anything? You, madam. Seven. What is? Seven. Do you know the trading symbol? Uh, no, no. What, what's the name again? Spell it for me. Sun. Sun. Run. Run. What the hell is that? Is that a solar company? Well, okay. Duh. Okay. I should have known that. No, quit it. Stop it, you weirdo. Okay. Well, that's taking an ass bath today. That's a technical term. <laughs> you weren't recommending a buy on that, were you? Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's not a hit. That's a paddling. Uh, God. Okay, let's talk here. Let's talk turkey. Okay, do you see how it closed yesterday at 2609? It opened today wondering why it was sitting in a toilet at 24.20. So overnight, there was a lot of sell pressure, maybe some buy pressure, but the sell pressure was much greater. So when the bell rang, boom, it went down right there. See, 26.09 last night when it closed, and then this morning it woke up, and it was already down because there was so much sell volume compared to buy volume that the price was just shedding off rapidly on it. Now, if we go through here, bid and ask, Actually, that's a very tight bid-ask spread. You can buy this stock at $24.02 per share. If you want to sell it, you get $24.01. That's a tight bid-ask spread. That's tighter than a lot. And a lot of times, if the bid-ask spread is tight, that usually means that there's a lot of trading. See, if I trade a stock only a few times a day, I'm going to want a pretty good piece of scratch on each trade, that spread. But if it's trading a lot, those two will tighten against each other because the different market makers will be fighting for position on them. So this is a decent bid-ask spread. The range, well, once it took that toilet break, it, it dropped into a trough. And then 
look here. See how there was buying on that? Bargain hunters said, oh, this price is way down and from what it should be. And so there was some buying pressure in here. You see that, how it's been pushing back up? It did. And then once that information came through, nothing really more has been happening. It's been kind of bouncing around here. Uh, it's, it's around the lunch hour. No, it's past the lunch hour. I'm sorry. It's well past the lunch hour in New York. So this thing is, uh, it just does, there's just no more news. So it took a hit way down, probably it lost maybe nine, nine and a half percent. And then it crawled back up because there were investors, people like you said, well, that's clearly undervalued now. So they, they started buying it. Now they bought it back up, but they didn't buy it back up very much. It's still down almost 8% for the day. And that is a clock cleaning on it. So now we go, notice, oh, yeah, see the volume? Already today, the on-balance volume is 10 million shares. The typical day over the last year, it's been only 7 million shares. So it has been actively traded. That explains that tight bid-ask spread, just what I was explaining before. A lot of activity tends to tighten the bid-ask spread because there's more money on each trade because everyone's bailing or buying. And so this is active. So some bad news came through and the market's immediate assessment was, this is awful. And then some investors said, eh, it's gone down too much. So they started bargain hunting on it and buying it back up. And there, there's, a, there's a good lesson. People say, um, well, can you give me some advice on how to invest? And I said, well, always buy low and sell high. And they think that's good advice until they realize I'm mocking their asses. Okay, let's look at uh, the market cap, $5 billion. That's not really a big market cap. It's enough to get me noticing it. But the beta, okay, if you look at that beta right now, Madam, is that a risky stock or a safe stock? Look at the beta. Risky. It is so risky. I mean, this is, this is the kind of risk that I take when I order from zero to six. I say six spiciness at the Indian restaurant. <laughs> and I, and I went, then I realized that I'm not really that, I, I really was regretted that. Let me show you this one, P-E ratio. Now you'll see this when we do ratio analysis a little later in the course. But all the P-E ratio does is take the price divided by the earnings. That's all that does. So in a real sense, the price earnings ratio is saying how many dollars is an equity investor willing to pay right now for $1 of the company's earnings. And to put it another way, if I saw a P.E. ratio of 25, that would say that I, as an equity investor, believe that this company, for every dollar it earns at the bottom line that belongs to the shareholders, it will turn that into $25 as a present value for us. Let me say that again. A P.E. ratio of 25 says that I believe that the market right now believes that every 
$1 that the company is going to earn that belongs to the shareholders, they will turn that into $25 for me as a shareholder. That's what it says. So as the price earnings ratio goes up, they are saying that the company will turn $1 into more dollars. If that price earnings ratio goes to 40, the comp I I'm saying, well, this company is going to turn a dollar into $40. So as the price earnings ratio goes up, you are seeing a metric of risk. Let me give you how bad it can get. There was a famous story on the Tokyo Exchange of a company that had a price earnings ratio of 200,000. In other words, investors thought that this company would turn every dollar that it made for them into $200,000. Of course, the company blew up, it died. That's just insane. Back in the really crazy uh, trading era in the late 1990s, in the mid to late 1990s, you saw P.E. ratios in the hundreds. That's, that, uh, companies just don't make that much on each dollar, but the P.E. ratios were that high. The, in other words, the P.E. ratio is telling, was telling people these stocks are overvalued. The prices are way higher, way too high for the level of earnings. So that, the P.E. ratio is, all, is a decent way to see overvaluation. Now, what would be a, a stable, where you would look for a P.E. ratio? Uh, you hear different people say different things. My cutoff is 30. Above 30, you're beginning to get into overvaluation, risk. Below 30, you're in undervaluation, uh, unusually low risk. So one of the things that some traders do, and I, I look at this too, I look for stocks with low P.E. ratios because I have at least some indication that there is an undervaluation. In other words, the price in the P, P divided by E is lower than it should be. So I'm looking at the P.E. ratio as a metric, again, of over or undervaluation. Now, interestingly enough, you can tell that one of, the, one of the authors of your textbook has never traded. He says that high P.E. ratios show safe uh, stocks, which is absolutely the opposite of what is the fact. So be cautious. That's one of those places where the book and I disagree, and I am so damn right <laughs> Don't even ask. Now look at this one. If you look at the P.E. ratio of Sunrun, you, do you see that? You see how it's... Uh, now interestingly, sometimes the beta and the P.E. ratio will disagree. But in this case, they are in complete agreement. High beta, high P.E. ratio. Yeah, this, this company is risky AF. I mean, this is the kind of uh, stock that most sane investors, not that you're insane, but most investors would stay away from uh, unless they really want to donate their, mar uh, their money uh, to uh, Wall Street boys. It's just a risky company. Now, interestingly enough, though, I look here, see the EPS, that's the earnings per share. That's the total profit 
net income divided by the number of shares outstanding. This is a positive number. So in other words, this company is profitable, for God's sake. I mean, that's a little surprising for a company like this, but it's actually po positive. And I mean, you, that's a pretty decent thing to say. Now remember, in finance, we don't care about profit. What we care about is cash flow, which is a different animal. And I'll teach you the difference between them, and I'll teach you how to calculate cash flow, free cash flow, free cash flow unlevered, free cash flow levered, all that kind of stuff later in the course. But do know that this is a little dodgy. Yeah, you can have a company that's profitable and it's still in trouble. Tesla has been a very good example. Look at a, it's profitable, but if you look at free cash flow, that is, it has shown a, a hole, yeah. Earnings per share, that's just you take the total net income of the company and divide it by the number of shares. And so that tells you what, how much money they made per share. And that's why it's called EPS, earnings per share. Yeah, sorry, I, I'm throwing these. I'm not, I'm not holding you to these. If you, you'll get used to my style. I throw a term at you several times before I formally introduce, introduce it to you. So I will just use these, and that, that's the way people learn best. When you're a little kid, you don't ask for definitions of words. You just hear them over and over, and then you get a sense of how you use them. Unfortunately, sometimes kids get the wrong sense of when to use words, but, you know, there's that. Uh, now, this one doesn't pay a dividend. And that's something that I want to talk about now. A company must pay its debts in a timely manner. If there is any residual, then the sharehold, that belongs to the shareholders. That's why we say that the debt holders have the prior claim to the cash flows and the shareholders have the residual claim. You can't have, it, there's nothing for the shareholders until the bills have been paid as they come due. So if you owe interest on a bond, you have to pay that. You, you, owe your, um, you owe your workers or your suppliers money, you have to pay that. That's how, why the accounting statements kind of reflect that. You notice all those bills in the liability section, be, uh, in the expenses, and then you get to operating income or EBIT, and then you get minus the tax, uh, minus the interest expense. Then you get EBT, earnings before taxes, what we call pre-tax, and then you minus it, what you have to owe to the government. And only below those is that net income line. That's what belongs to the shareholders. They have the residual claim, and the debt holders have the prior claim. In a future quiz and or exam, I will ask just a simple question. And so you, you're already up a couple of points right now, so you won't go home from this course empty-handed. Now, the shareholders. There are two things that the company can do. That money belongs to the shareholders, that net income. So the company has two things that it can do with that. It can plow it back into the company to grow the company. 
which should bring the stock price up. Remember, the company belongs to the shareholders, so they are doing that for the shareholders. They're reinvesting it, plowing it back into the company. Or, and or, they can pay a dividend. Cut, cut the shareholders a check. Give them some of that money back. Give it all back to them. But it's the, it's the board of directors that makes that decision, whether they're going to plow it back or give uh, some of it back as a dividend. Some companies give back a lot of their profit as dividends. Some companies, small upstarts, startups, don't give any dividend back because they need all that money to push back into the company to grow the company. Theoretically, that'll make the stock price go up and the shareholders will be happy. But you also have to recognize that shareholders like those dividends. And that's something that is a very difficult situation. There were a number of times when I had companies that I was, consult I was pr their primary consultant, and you know, they were making a profit. They were finally making a profit, and so, well, we're going to put that money back into the company. But then you go to the shareholders' meeting, and those shareholders are not happy. They've, in one case, there was this company that had been around for a long time, and the, I was consulting for a group that had done a reverse merger. The company was basically dead, but it was still listed. <coughs> and so we came in and we inserted this, this private company into the dead public shell. So there we were, we, a, a public company, <laughs> sort of the cheater's way to do it, and it, they got underway. And after a year or two, they were actually pulling a profit. And a couple of years went by and more profit, plow back in, get this company really going, and then here came the shareholders' meeting. And oh my God, I mean, there I am, I'm supposed to be the spokes goat for the, for the board of directors. They're all sitting at the table behind me, and I'm taking the questions and the statements from the shareholders, classic you know, meeting kind of thing. And they're, they're really upset. And this one woman, she would not quit. We have invested in this company 30, 40 years ago, and never saw a dividend, and then here you come back in with all these promises, and you're saying you're profitable now, and we still haven't gotten a dividend, and we, we need a dividend. We've been waiting all this time. She just wouldn't stop. And I, you know, I have to be a diplomatic person. I just said, look, bitch. I, <laughs> I try to get it. You know, we're putting money back in so that we can pay dividends down the line and still not starve our damn company. But it didn't work out so well. It, it, the meeting ended and the directors went out the back door and idiot me parked in the front lot at that church. And so fortunately, I walked by a nice picture, a religious picture, so I figured I'm safe. That, that didn't turn out. A couple of people pushed me around. But yeah, I, that, that's, you notice here, this company is not paying a dividend. Even though they're pro they've got a profit. That means that they're pushing it back into the company. Now, we'll talk about this down here. Yahoo and a lot of services do a one-year price projection. How good are those? Well, think about this. You're going to take a projection, a one-year projection of a price from a company called Yahoo. Uh, 
I mean, I could probably do a projection of it too, but sometimes you'll see me just grab this number as an example to show you how you calculate capital gains and all that. You know, well, let's say it was 45.26 in one year, you bought it at 23.90, what was your capital gain as a percentage, that kind of thing. But just be a little cautious about taking anyone's projections of the price of a stock. Let me show you an, a, an example on the other side. We're going to look at Target, uh, Target, of course, if you're upscale. Okay, couple of things to note. Ow, oh God, okay. You, sir, is this a safe or a risky stock? It's right in the middle. It's at 1.01. That means it's almost exactly the volatility of the world portfolio. I mean, it, 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 over a long period of time in a well-diversified portfolio, Target is going to move up and down very much like the market. At 1.01, the market is 1.00. That means that it's right in the middle of the risk level. If you are bullish on the world portfolio, on the world economy, this would be essentially a proxy that you could put into your portfolio. Put in a bunch of stocks at about the same beta, and essentially you have formed a world portfolio without buying billions of stocks. Uh, notice the P-E ratio is a little on the low side, so do you see that? Uh, below my usual 30 is the middle. I would say that from that P-E ratio, it looks to be a little bit undervalued. In other words, that price has a little upward movement against earnings that it could show. So that's what I'm seeing here in this. Uh, that bid ask spread is, oh wow, look at that. Yeah, the volume is pretty low, quite low on target so far today. So you notice that volume at 1 million on a typical day, it's 4.8 million. Notice the bid ask spread, see how that's a little wider there at six cents between the bid and the ask. Yeah, those two are kind of connected. It's not a perfect connection, but if I wanted to buy a share of Target, I'd pay 163.48. And if I wanted to sell some Target, I'd be at 163.42. So notice that if you buy Target, you are instantly in the hole six cents per share, right off the bat. That's just how it works. Now, another thing uh, is, let's try this one. Uh, what say you, sir? Is this is Target profitable or not? Look right up there. What do you see? Is it profitable or not? Uh, it's just the PE ratio. No, look, look at the uh, EPS. EPS is positive, so this is a profitable company. In other words, the net income divided by the number of shares is a positive number, and that's a darn nice. I mean, you can't beat seven dollars, seven and change per share. So this company is really, really uh, a lot, uh, doing well. Now coming down here, just as a couple more, notice this is the one that just blows me away. Do you see their dividend per share? $4.32? That's more than how, half of what they made per share. This company gives a very generous dividend. See how the company made per share uh, $7.32. It gave back to the shareholders $4.32 of that as a dividend. And the remaining 
and the remaining $3 a share, it plowed back into the company. That's, so in other words, this is a, older companies do this. You'll see that companies, as they grow, they get to a point where they really don't have a, a need for all that extra money. They'll just give it back to the shareholders. And so, the, and this is why a stock like this is better for an older investor, because they're getting a check in the mail for every share that they own. They're getting a dividend check every year. And the stock price may go up, so they'll get a capital gain as well. But they're doing pretty well, uh, and this would be something for conservative investors, older investors, more stable uh, investors who want income rather than risk of capital gains. Stock price going up is pretty is kind of a risky bet. But if you're going to get a dividend in the mail every year, well, that's that's not risky at all. That's pretty darn nice. So in other words, in in a real sense, if I put into a savings account $163.35 right now, that dividend would be the same as that savings account getting me 2.64% annual return, which is actually a lot better than you could get at a bank. Of course, this is riskier than a bank. Any stock is going to be risky. But this is actually a very nice investment. And there's that. Taken another one, just to finish this up one last time, I will... Oh. Let me show you something. Berkshire Hathaway. Does anyone know Berkshire Hathaway? Yeah, it's the Warren Buffett's company, that big, huge real estate company. Now, this company has two kinds of stock. It has an A and a B. Now, a baby Burke, you can say, I own I have ownership, I have an equity stake in Berkshire Hathaway. Ha, ha, ha. Well, it's kind of an expensive stock. It's, you know, it's pretty stable. See that beta? Look at that beta. That beta is below one, safe investment, $312 a share. A round lot is 100 shares. So if you ordered a round lot of Berkshire Hathaway, you would pay $31,216. It's a, you know, and you would be able to go to the annual shareholders meeting, have your say. But what was that other one? Oh, there's another Berkshire Hathaway. You see, the baby Berks have one vote per share per officer, per uh, director. The baby Burks have controlling interests. They have super majority. They're Warren's friends, Warren's family, Warren, and all of those people. Let's see what one of those would cost you. <laughs> you see, that's, a, that's one share. $472,441. But you'd get to sit near Warren Buffett at the annual meeting and you would have a say, a real say, in voting for directors. So if you want to look for some change under the seat of your car and see if you can grab one of these, that, that is a monster price, but it's also, interestingly enough, a very a reasonably safe investment. Notice that these don't pay a dividend, 
why would something as massive as Berkshire Hathaway, with a price that high, not pay a dividend? Here's, here's the thing. If you have the money to buy shares like this, you don't give a rat's ass about getting a dividend check in the mail. Oh, goody, I got a dividend check. I can buy cat food this month. <laughs> no, you're too rich. They don't have to pay a dividend, for God's sake. <laughs> That's all there is to it with those is, yeah, go ahead. Oh, that's a, uh, okay, the one, one thing about that is that Yahoo Finance, those numbers are sticky. You're probably seeing something that was hours ago. But that essentially means in hundreds of thousands, or is it, no, in uh, thousands, how many shares are on each side of the buy, uh, buy or a sell that are open on the book to make a trade. So that number should be flipping all the time. But it's just a side. It just tells you for the bid, there are uh, sellers. There one. Th uh, no, that is that's uh, one hundred twenty thousand, and then on the ask side there are eight hundred thousand. So you can see that there is an imbalance toward the sellers right now on it. In this case, I tend to avoid that because if I were looking at a, a real trading platform you'd see real numbers there, and they'd be bouncing up and down as trades actually got executed and all that. Next week, I will teach you how to buy and sell. I will teach you the terminology and the ways that you can make money. Keep in mind, and I'll say this now, and I'll show you how as the course goes along. You can make money when stocks go up. You can make money when stocks go down. You don't have to say, well, I'm going to lose money because it's a bear market. You ride the bear. And you do, the opposite of buying is not selling. The opposite of buying is what's called short selling. And short selling is when you are betting the stock prices will go down and you can make just as much money short selling as you can buy. Uh, buy. So whether it's a bull or a bear market, there's always money to be made. Even if there's an apocalypse, the zombie apocalypse has happened, most of the world's population is dead, you can, if you live, you can go into people's apartments and take their Nikes because they won't need them anymore. They're dead. God, I hated saying that. No, I didn't. That was good. Okay. Let me tell you about the types of financial institutions just briefly here as we move on in the day. The financial institutions. I'm going to bring up a term that is only touched in the book. And it's actually kind of an important term. Yeah. Madam, do you have any money on you? Um, just my credit card. <sighs> I don't take credit cards. I once went out with a Czechoslovakian girl, but my parents said no because they don't accept checks. <laughs> Never mind. My roommate came into the kitchen and she said, have you seen the dog bowl? And I said, I didn't even know it could. <laughs> but that would ripple across. 
Where the hell? Where the hell? What? Oh, okay. I suppose <laughs> I don't have any money. I, actually, I don't. Oh, I got a dollar. <laughs> okay. Now I need twenty dollars. I am a. I am at a deficit of of nineteen dollars. So I am a deficit economic unit. Now there is someone in here. You know, surely you have $19, and you say, don't call me Shirley. Surely you have $19, and you say, why, yes, I do. Well, then you would be a surplus economic unit. Now, there might be room for a match between us, but there are some things that are going to get in the way, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But a surplus economic unit has funds that can be provided a deficit economic unit is in need of funds. So you've got the surplus and you've got the deficit. How do those match? Well, that's the whole point of our modern capitalist system is the matching of surplus and deficit economic units. Now, the weird thing is that you can be both at the same time. And I'll show you how that happens here in a minute. But let's go with this uh, $19. I should like to pay you back in uh, a month. And you say, no, fat boy, I need my money back in a week. Oh. So in other words, there has to be a timing match, the conditions of the match. There has to be a timing match. So I you, madam, would you take it in a month? And you say, why, yes, I would. But then I say, $19? You say, no, I, I've got $100. I don't want to just dole it out. I just want to get, you know, make some money off my $100. Well, hell. So in other words, another part of the match has to be the levels have to be the same. That's a fancy word for the amount. I could tell you right now, I, I, I'd probably run out of memory, the number of investors who have in the hundreds of thousands of dollars that they could provide. So why don't I go to them for my $19? Because they'd laugh their asses off at me. We don't do that. Okay? So the level has to be the same. But then there's one more. Okay, that didn't work out. So uh, I'm going to walk up and I'm going to say, you, madam, can you take it back in a month? Why, yes, I can. $19? Why, sure. Okay, we got a deal. And you say, absolutely not. You're a risky son of a bitch. I've seen you. You're weird. I mean, you hang out at Denny's at midnight looking for love. You're, I, I no. I, besides that, you drink so much coffee. I mean, I'm down to two pots a day, okay? I'm getting there. Okay, and all this. See, risk. 
See, there are some risk, uh, uh, investors who like risk. They want to take risk because greater risk means greater return, uh, expected return. But there are some who say, you know, to hell with a greater expected return. I don't want the chance to lose my money. That would be the difference between a buyer of stock in Sunrun and a buyer of stock in uh, Target, the level of risk they're willing to bear. So the third part of the match is the risk. How do we put those together? Where would it be an efficient environment to accomplish this? Not on a scale of $19 or $1,000 or even $100,000, on the scale of literally trillions of dollars. How could this possibly happen? And it does all the time. Day in, day out, the flow of funds around the world is now approaching the quadrillions, just flowing. And hardly anyone even knows this is happening. But that's where we have financial intermediaries. Financial intermediation. Is the matching of, financial intermediation is the matching of surplus and deficit economic units. Financial intermediation is the matching of surplus and deficit economic units based upon level, timing, and risk. Based upon level, timing, and risk. Financial intermediation is the matching of surplus and deficit economic units based upon level, timing, and risk. You can be a surplus and a deficit economic unit at the same time. You can lend me a few bucks as a surplus economic unit, but then you go to a bank for the matching for the home at $200,000 as a deficit economic unit. Do you work? Okay, are you contributing to Social Security? Uh, you would hope you are. And so, in other words, there is a pile of funds where you are the surplus economic unit. And then there's also, you're go you get a student loan or you get a car loan or a house loan or something like that. And that is where you are a deficit economic unit at the very same time that you're a surplus economic unit. You buy some stock. You're the surplus economic unit providing liquidity to the, capital, the equity capital market. But at the same time, you're borrowing money for your car and all that. But all of that is happening through these financial intermediaries. Now, that doesn't mean that they have to be there. There are personal, you know, people go back and forth on their own. But in order for our capitalist world to do what it does, it has to have this financial intermediation working in 
trillions of dollars and just efficiently within the blink of an eye doing the matches between those who have and those who need. I'll give you an example of matching. I told you about there are some investors who don't want to keep, have their money gone for more than a few weeks. Well, what they would do is they would be surplus economic units into those uh, commercial paper markets, you know, those real fast loans to big corporations. But then you have some who will invest in a corporation's 15-year bonds. So their, their, ti their um, timing is much longer. And then there are investors who will provide the funds for 30-year debt instruments. Corporate, government, school bond issues, that's out there. And then there are even some who don't want their money back for a century or more than a century. They would be the providers of capital to the markets where they, the return won't happen for a century or more. You think, well, how in the hell, where would that be? Well, there are a couple of places. Over the next 10 years, you'll see projects that will be on the order of 50 years, especially projects for mining operations on asteroids uh, and things like that. Uh, there are some things that you wouldn't even believe me if I told you are actually in this works right now. But there's another place, life insurance companies. Um, you can buy life insurance. <coughs> for one thing, if they, they'll buy bonds that are very long term because they don't need that money back until you die and you're probably not going to die for 50 years or longer. Some of you probably a lot sooner than that. But, so, uh, but there are even, well, what about these 100-year and all that? Well, a good example is earthquake insurance. Out here in this part of the country, did you know that we're near a fault line? They, it's called the New Madrid. And once in the period when uh, the Europeans were here, it let go. It was in the early 1800s, and it was ungodly. I, you read the letters from the people who were down in St. Louis at the time. They're describing something perfectly out of an apocalypse uh, movie. It, fires and the earthquakes just kept happening and then the aftershocks and then another one after they tried to put up a few buildings again. It was so bad that, the, um, that the, some of the explorers said the Mississippi ran backwards. I mean, it actually didn't. These earthquake was so powerful that it literally lifted up the land and threw the water back up the Mississippi and then it comes back down as a tsunami and wiped out all the farmland along its path. Yeah, that kind of apocalypse. And then we have descriptions from oral tradition of the Native Americans who said that they had an oral tradition of this happening a couple hundred years before, back maybe in the 12 or 1300s. So in other words, this is a fault line that the frequency is extremely low, but the severity is insanely high. So there's something we'll talk about more in the time to come. So that timing takes uh, on a lot of significance in this, as well as the level and the uh, risk of the project too. 
By the way, the probability of an earthquake here in this part of the country is still very low, but it's been notching up a little bit every year, as I saw in some of the actuarial analysis a couple of years ago. Okay, now, who does this? Who's involved in this? Well, that's the part that's, uh, that's a good question. And we will hit that probably on Monday.